Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the nature podcast is a nice normal bell curve, then Backchat would catastrophically fail the normality test. This month, statistics, mathematics and intelligent algorithms. We'll be discussing misused p-values, getting the gossip on the latest success of Google's AI, AlphaGo, and watching mathematicians win prizes, which is awkward. I'm Kerry Smith and I'm pleased to introduce my mathletes and stats superstars, Davide Castelvecchi. Hello, I'm Davide. I'm the Math Prize correspondent. Lizzie Gibney also joins us. Hello, I write about physical sciences in all different kinds of forms from here in London. And special guest Monia Baker visiting the London office all the way from San Francisco. Hello, I write about how scientists can make science more reliable. Now, coming up this month, all of the glamorous topics, as we've hinted at already, starting with statistics, specifically p-values, at their best rigorous evidence, at worst wonky and misleading and misinterpreted. Um, Monia, as you mentioned, you're our kind of stats correspondent uh, of late. The problem here is that scientists are sometimes not using this kind of pillar of statistics properly, right? That's right. They're... they're um trusting it way too much. And they think that it can say whether or not their hypothesis is correct, which is not something that the p-value can do. Uh, what the p-value can do is tell you how likely a certain set of values is to occur by chance, assuming that there's no correlation between various values and a variety of other assumptions are true. Now, this month it's become news because the American Statistical Association, which is a very old and dignified body of concerned statisticians, have sort of weighed in on um, how people are abusing the p-value. That's right. The, um, the ASA, the American Statistical Association, it's been around since 1839. And this is the first time that it's actually come out with a warning on such a foundational principle of science, um, namely that p-values are being misused. Um, and they did this partly because they thought that p-values were contributing to irreproducible science and giving statisticians and statistics a bad name. It is unusual, isn't it, that a body like that would weigh in on what is essentially another discipline, science. It's definitely unusual for them. They had um, a couple dozen statisticians arguing for about a year about exactly what this warning would say. And they talked about a lot of things and eventually pared it down to six points about how p-values are, are not used well. Can you give us a flavor of what it was that they were unhappy about, uh, so unhappy that they wrote this paper? Um, the most important thing is that it can't tell you how likely it is that a hypothesis is to be true. The magic number for p-values is a p-value of less than or equal to 0.05, which a lot of people turn around wrongly on its head and say, if I get a p-value of 
of this. It means that my hypothesis, my idea is 95% likely to be true. That's that's not the case. Um, also, they're concerned that a lot of times people are picking what results to present based on p-values uh, rather than what results might actually matter and what might actually be uh, a meaningful effect in treating somebody or um, making a policy decision. Do they suggest any kind of more wide, I guess, education policies? Are they are they sort of implying that scientists aren't being trained properly in how to use these statistics? I, I think that um, what's happened is, you know, if you're a researcher, you don't think about what a p-value means to a statistician. If you're a researcher, you think the p-value is the number that tells you whether or not you can publish your results. And so a lot of times people keep doing an analysis again and again until they find a p-value that has the, the magic number or they do so many analyses that some something pops out as statistically significant. And then they focus on this. And it's important to remember that the researchers don't think that they're doing what has been called p-hacking. They think that what they're doing is very clever analysis to find faint signals and that by doing so many analyses, they're, they're homing in on the truth. But in fact, what they're doing is finding results that are often spurious. How have people reacted then? Because I, I, I guess, as you say, it has just been, become part of what scientists do a lot of the time is they do their research, maybe they focus on that and they interpret their results and they come up with a p-value and they and they publish. And being told that's not quite the way to do it or you need to do it better, is it going to shake up the way some people work? Is it, you know, how, how have people reacted? It's generated a lot of interest. And I think that the, the guidelines have done um, two things. One set is going to be very useful for the scientific community, and they're going to know what to do. The, the, the guidelines say that if you do many, many analyses to find things that are statistically significant, you need to describe all of those analyses so that people have a sense of the array of things that, that were done. That's something that is pretty clear and that scientists can probably comply with. The journal editors I spoke with were very happy that this body weighed in and said, you need to describe your analyses so thoroughly. Now, the thing that the scientific community is going to have trouble with, and I should probably say this is mainly the biomedical community and the psychology community because they're, they're the ones that really use, use p-values, is the guidelines say you can't use just a p-value to decide what's what's publishable, but they have. You need to use scientific re reasoning, and I think people crave certainty. They crave sort of this statistical recipe to tell you whether or not to to believe your results. So there's sort of a void now in um in how you know how much you you can trust your work. I was um. Amazed to read a, from a science news article um, a couple of years ago, because, of course, this isn't a new topic. This article said that statistical techniques for testing hypotheses have more flaws than Facebook's privacy policies. Um, so I guess it isn't a new problem, but it's quite welcome to have somebody like the ASA weigh in and say, look, just expand your methods section, write down what statistical tests you're doing and where you got these p-values from. I think the warnings are, you know, in the pace of science, relatively new. This sort of burst into awareness around 2011 when this uh, trio of statistically-minded psychologists gamed an analysis, and they showed that um, listening to the Beatles, I think, when I'm 64, would actually make undergraduates younger. And they went through and <laughs> said, um, look, we got this great p-value. Here's how we did it. Be careful, people. You are you think you're doing a careful analysis and doing something clever to find the the tr a true result, but what you're really doing is p hacking. And how many news outlets reported it as the elixir of life? <laughs> <laughs> Do journalists also need more stats training? I feel like I look at a paper and sometimes I'm I'm ill-equipped to tell whether this result has been gained meaningfully or not. I feel the same way. I I think that if scientists start 
describing their analyses more thoroughly, um, that it's going to be more um, more apparent. I remember years ago reading a paper um, showing that prayer could help patients with severe gastrointestinal problems get better. And when I read it more closely, I saw that they had not just looked at gastrointestinal problems, they'd looked at heart conditions and headaches and, you know, 20 odd things. So of course, something would show up as as working. Just as a statistical fluctuation. Just as a statistical fluctuation. It's, it's, I, I don't think um, many people seriously believe that that a higher power has a soft spot for gastrointestinal problems. People see papers too often as some some message of fact rather than some interesting finding that others will hopefully build on. You need to become confident of a body of work, not a single paper. And again, I think that's where we come in as journalists. Like a lot of the time, if you're at a conference, you see how people are arguing over a paper, how two p- very prominent people in a field will completely disagree over the results of some analysis. And, you know, we try, I suppose, and get some a flavor of that into our stories. But so often what happens is you have a paper that comes out, it's been peer reviewed, you know, the magic gold standard, and therefore it's correct. And I guess, yeah, t- to get across some of this as well would be really handy. Yeah, a little bit less of the gloss of finality. I saw in your article, Monia, that um, there was actually some call to completely replace the p-value or to not to not use it at all what would you do in that case like what are the other options so p-values are a kind of statistics that show sort of how likely um, values are to occur they're sort of like they focus on the frequency of certain values occurring and there's um, another set of statistics uh, called bayesian statistics and that's more about the probability of something occurring and in those you can adjust them as you get more data. And so there's there's a lot of very passionate advocates for Bayesian statistics over p-values. But most of the people I spoke to said that there's a place for both both approaches. You just can't put all of your all of your faith in a particular number lower than 0.05. Not all your p's in one basket. <laughs> um, one community it strikes me who have a kind of an existential crisis whenever they publish something over the, their own p-value is the high-energy physics community. No one can think of the Higgs boson being discovered without talking about five sigma or six or however many. Uh, they seem, let's not say unduly worried, but, uh, you know, they set themselves a high standard, right? In fact, Lizzie and I covered uh, precisely one such uh, low sigma or, or you know, high p uh, result yesterday, which was an update on uh, some kind of... Uh, apparition of a ghost particle from December, which may or may not be there, from the Large Hadron Collider. One thing that is special maybe about particle physics is that particle physics is inherently a game of chance because it's rooted in the in the laws of quantum physics where basically everything can happen. It's just that some things are a bit more probable, a bit more likely to happen than others. You might say the same about psychology half the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... But but the thing is, when you see when you see uh, photons, as in this case, hap- you know, appearing in your detector, you can never be sure what those photons came from. It's only by, uh, you know, looking at many many collisions of particles and and many many photons that come out and doing statistics, that you can really start to to say something. And you you mentioned the existential crisis. I think I see it more like. Particle physicists are maybe I think it's fair to say they have been you know leaders in in this uh, you know know thyself uh, Socratic kind of uh, you know skepticism movement. Um, they have been the ones 
I believe, who who uh, promoted the idea of the five sigmas as the golden standard, and they, in fact, have very very strict internal uh, ways inside the experiments to vet their own results. So I don't think it ever happens that that uh, you know when they submit a paper for publication, then it's rejected by the journals because it has already been peer reviewed internally very strictly maybe personality wise they just don't mind uncertainty they're like they're happy with like we think we've discovered this we may not have done there is a million to one chance well, that we may not these things happen we get little fluctuations little excesses um in places where you don't expect to see them all the time and so they absolutely do have to factor that in so they are very very careful and just to go back so the the five sigma is um is really quite a tough threshold isn't it so it's a a one in three and a half million odd chance that you would get a fluctuation like that just in the background, just just if if nothing actually exists there. Yeah, I just looked it up. I, I, uh, it actually, if you translate it into a p value, it's zero point zero 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 three. Huh. It's a very, very low. So, five uh, how are the money? How are the biomedical <laughs> scientists and psychologists going to feel think about we this? We have enough zeros on the <laughs> keyboard. But how? How did? I, I'm curious. How did you get? How did this become a standard? Weren't some physicists saying four sigma's good enough? You know, I mean, <laughs> how, how, did, how did you get consensus around such a, a high threshold? Well, the good news is that because it's a game of numbers, uh, usually if you have a four sigma result. If you just keep doing the same experiment for you know a longer time, it should, you should get it'll grow. If it's yeah, so if it if it's a if it's a statistical fluke, it will go away, and if it's not if it's a real thing, it will pop up of the data eventually. I think partly it's because um, in particle physics you've got one community like CERN who's kind of ruling the roost a little bit at the moment. You know, there's only one LHC. So they get a little bit to decide the rules. But but as Davide says as well, it's not like it only ever gets reported on once it's gone over that five sigma threshold. You know, people like us <laughs> will go and talk to people and say, oh, hey, you know, we've got this two sigma result. You know, that's nothing. But so has the other experiment, which, you know, if you're seeing this completely independently, isn't that interesting? And then it goes above three and then it goes above four. And we're going, go on, go on. Are you excited now? Go on, tell us. <laughs> and then eventually after five sigma, they have a big press conference. And in reporting it, you have to hedge your bets pretty severely in the meantime, right? So your story, your joint story, you guys, Lizzie and Davide, have been writing about this slightly stronger signal is what their headline says. And in the story, 1.2 sigma before 1.6 now. So actually, probably the physicists you're speaking to are like, oh, it's way too early, guys. Like, this isn't really anything yet. It is. And they definitely said that. However, it was also by far the most packed out talk at the conference. It was, you know, a hashtag on Twitter that was going crazy, like... As much as that is true, everybody wants, you know, we're so desperately looking for some kind of crack in the standard model that I think it's just human nature and very understandable that we get interested whenever a possibility arises. All right. Well, let's let's move on. We were going to talk about maths prizes specifically because a large prize has just been awarded. And there is one interesting statistic there. The winner of this year's Abel Prize, who is considered a, a British nat national treasure, Andrew Wiles, Sir Andrew Wiles of Oxford University is so far the youngest recipient of the Abel Prize at the tender age of 62. The average age of recipients so far uh, since the, the prize was, was uh, started in 2003 has been 77. 
But I thought all mathematicians did their best work before they were like 19 or something and you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't be decent after that. There may be some truth to that, even though um, it hasn't been completely uh, borne out by, by recent examples. I mean, Wiles himself did his, his best work in his late 30s and early 40s. And in fact... Uh, when he solved the, the famous, his famous result was solving the uh, Fermat's last theorem, he did not qualify for what was then considered the most coveted prize in mathematics, the Fields Medal, because th that has a cutoff of 40 years old. You have to be under 40 to get that prize. You have to be under 40 at the time when your work has been done and vetted. That's very ageist, isn't it? It does seem outrageous. But, so he told you that he was surprised to get this prize, but he has a building named after him. People line up for his autograph. So did he think people were going to wait until he was 77? I mean, was he really surprised? Indeed, indeed. He works at the Andrew Wiles building where the <laughs> Mathematical Institute of Oxford is, is uh, located. What he told me, the full quote probably was more like, I was surprised to get it so soon <laughs> because I'm only 62. 25 years after I did the work. I mean, he's, you know, he's aware of the, the, you know, the hugeness of his achievement, but the Abel Prize is um, kind of counterbalances the Fields Medal because the Fields Medal focuses on what's hot, you know, now in math and who are the, the people who are doing the work that's most exciting in the last four years. And the Abel Prize is more like a prize to somebody's career. Lifetime achievement award. Lifetime achievement. And... When the Abel Prize was, was established in 2003, all of a sudden you have scores of octogenarian or older uh, mathematicians who are considered demigods, who are all obviously uh, deserving of such a prize. And so there was kind of a backlog. I mean, people maybe don't want to say it too explicitly, but they, they wanted to give prizes to a lot of people before it was too late. For actuarial reasons, they, they went for the older ones. Do you think there are a lot of 70-year-olds who are quite miffed that this young upstart got the prize? Um, I've asked that question. Mathematicians are very uh, reticent to say. You know, they don't gossip very much about uh, this prize. They don't even... A lot of times when I call people up to ask for comments about the Abel Prize, I'm the one who tells them, you know that the Abel Prize was announced today and then such and such person won it. Within the, the within the math community, there is a very strong sense of hierarchy of who are the 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 top minds because of their achievements. Their their achievements are you know on paper they're there for everyone to read, and somehow that's already the biggest prize to them. Everything else is an afterthought. So it's not quite like the Nobel Prizes, because I think often by winning a Nobel Prize, somebody gets elevated to some whole different plane of scientific, you know, godness. I think it's, I think you're right. It's very different. He's already got a building named after him. What on earth is he going to find to spend all of this money on? Because he's been awarded how, what's the prize worth? It's a, a million kroner, uh, uh, Norwegian kroner. Um, I think that is something like $700,000. And, uh, well, people asked him, but he, he said he hadn't had the time to think about it. I love it when people say, oh, I'm just going to buy a yacht or something. Because <laughs> it's so rare. It's so rare. <laughs> well, I suppose they feel as if they need to put it towards some new swanky equipment for their lab in the case of the Nobels, perhaps. But, but um, for a mathematician, what, new pencils? More graph paper. Maybe he'll get a awesome. new bicycle. I don't know. Is, this is a naive question and kind of a tenuous link to our next section. But 
maths being based as it is around a set of beautiful rules, is it ever the kind of thing that people in AI would consider suitable for their applications, for artificial great minds? Uh, it's funny you should ask, because there is a thing called uh, uh, proof assistant that people are starting to use. They, um, and in fact, people are also, I mean, some mathematicians believe that uh, that AI can be useful also for formulating hypotheses as well as for finding, you know, proof for you instead of having to do it. The, 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 it's still a very, very small minority of people who do this. And, it, and it's also, there's the problem that to have a computer formulate or understand or solve a math problem, you also have to first uh, write it down in a way that a computer can read it. And that's not very easy. There was my tenuous link to artificial intelligence. Lizzie, you've written about Google's company DeepMind before. We've talked about their achievements before on the podcast. Uh, last year, they designed an AI that could learn how to play Atari arcade games, which was extremely esoteric. Uh, and now they've just beaten the inverted commas world champion Go player with another of their AI algorithms, AlphaGo. Exactly. So what is special about what they're doing is like the way that they're doing it and the way they're combining lots of different AI techniques. So what they did uh, last year with playing all these Atari games was pretty special because it was an algorithm that could learn to play any game from scratch without being given the rules. And they did something uh, a little bit similar here in that they, they use these neural networks, which are kind of brain-inspired um, architectures and that, that learn by experience. Um, and so they had their, their program study a lot of human games and then it played itself over and over and over again um, getting better and better and better by trial and error basically and yes as I'm sure most people are aware by now the program called AlphaGo beat uh, Lee Sedol who is one of the greatest Go players of the of the last 10 years and it beat him 4-1 and this has sent kind of shockwaves through a lot of the countries where Go is really popular South Korea, China and Japan and something interesting, which is a story that um, not me, but someone else is writing for us, is about how South Korea have decided that they need to put more resources into AI. $840 million over five years. Um, and then they said, you know, oh, we're, we're really grateful for AlphaGo for making us realize how much we need to invest in AI before it's too late. How, how much do you know about how they understand what it's doing in real time. So it's kind of a black box, right? It learns for itself. It's teaching itself by playing these games. Is there, just like the sort of world economy is something else that humans have invented and now we don't really understand it properly, is is this the same kind of thing? So it has a probability. It knows how likely it is to win in any given position. So it can see its own, it can track its own stats. But in terms of how it's doing it, no. It's it's um, very much like, well, people call it kind of intuition. It can't tell you why this is a good move, uh, but it can tell you that, that it knows from having played however many hundreds of millions of games that that is the best move to play in this scenario. Um, but no, it can unfortunately tell you why to make that move. And in terms of the calculations it's doing and the way that it's actually performing, I'm, I'm sure they don't know exactly what's happening at each bit either. I guess I'm just getting at the fact that if they designed an AI that did something more sophisticated even than playing Go, do they have like an ethics team I that mean, addresses... It's definitely 
I th- they do have an ethics team. I think that's separate. I'm sure that came out from when I was talking to them. At least Google definitely does. They have an ethics team. I don't know if it's specific to DeepMind. But yeah, it's true that so so the program learnt on expert human games, but then it played against itself and it's become effectively superhuman. So it can come up with all these kind of tactics um, and ways to play the game that perhaps no person has ever thought of before. Um, and in fact, in that way, it seemed to be playing moves that made it look bad because no one could really understand them. It was going off in some direction and, and they thought, well, that's, that's really dumb. Like, why is it doing that? And then towards the end of the game, it kind of all came together and everyone went, wow, that was actually a genius move. Who knew? But it's interesting what you said about the black box because it's very relevant to science, actually. One of the things that motivate the AlphaGo people, um, you know, there's uh, Demis Hassabis, who is the mastermind of, of Google DeepMind. I saw him give a talk where he said that one of the main motivations for them, for this company is to uh, basically develop an artificial scientist, um, basically an, an AI system that can not replace scientists, but they say that they, they could uh, flank scientists and help them in the lab. But there's the problem that you mentioned of the black box, because if the computer comes up with, an, with a hypothesis or with, say, for example, some kind of physics equation without telling you why it came to that conclusion... Some of the physics intuition could be could could go away, and 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 physicists don't want to just know the answer to things; they also want to know what's the reasoning behind it. And there's a whole now, uh, you know, direction of research in AI, which is finding ways to open the black box and understand what's going on inside. Well, uh, unless there's any other business, that concludes this month's bank chat, which I hope you'll all agree was significant colloquially, if not statistically. Thank you to the three delightful Sigmas I have with me, Lizzie Gibney, Davide Castelvecchi and Monia Baker. Uh, where can listeners find you on Twitter, Lizzie? I'm at Lizzie Gibney. Monia? I'm Monia underscore science, M-O-N-Y-A. And Davide? At the Castelvecchi. And I'm at Mini Kerry. Find us also at Nature Podcast. And if you've got a minute, pop over to iTunes and leave us a review or just click as many stars as you think we deserve. Click subscribe also to have each of these episodes delivered to your device automatically. That's all from us. Thanks for listening. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.